This morning we're going to consider the second of the I Am sayings of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. So if you would open your Bible to chapter 8, John chapter 8, I'm going to read the first 12 verses. If you would listen and follow along. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and whom they had set, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, we've come, we've read your word, we've tried to sing in accordance with it. We've read this portion of your word where Jesus is dealing with the one caught in the very act of sin. Makes himself known as the light of the world. Lord, our desire is that you would make yourself known as such today among us. That we would know you to be who you are in truth. Not only the bread of life, but the light of the world and so much more. We pray you would come now and be our teacher, instruct us in the things of God, help us to leave this place having seen Jesus again, and perhaps some for the very first time, see him in truth. We ask it for his sake, we ask it for our good, we ask it in his name, amen. I want to look at these 12 verses under three headings. The first being the need of light. The second being the provision of light. And the third being the effect of coming to the light. There is great need. There is greater provision. And then there is a great effect of coming to the light of the world, even Jesus. 
As we begin, I just want to mention this in passing because if you have a reference Bible or a study Bible of some kind, you will see that the first 11 verses of John 8 are under dispute. They are what we call a textual variant. There's a notation in your Bible that says that these verses may or may not have been originally written by John, may have been inserted at a later time. The simple fact of the matter is we don't know. We're going to treat them as if they are indeed inspired scripture, trusting that the Lord has preserved for us exactly what we need in this day and time. And so we're going to proceed with that in the backs of our mind, knowing and trusting that what we've come to this morning is the declared word of God. He has breathed it out. He has made it known to us. I want us to see, first of all, the need for light. And the great difference or distinction that the scriptures place upon these two terms, darkness and light. And I want you to think, first of all, with me, in the realm of nature, in the physical universe, these are the two basic foundational realities of natural life. Darkness and light. It's dark at night when the sun is not out. When the sun is, when the sun is risen, the light comes along with it. That cycle is going to repeat itself until the Lord returns. The very first act of creation. If you go all the way back to Genesis, the first chapter, and it's not even verse 20, it's verse 3. Very early in the revelation of God, we read, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. The point that I want to make here is that in the natural world, in God's creation, the first act of creation was light to distinguish day from night. In the spiritual realm, the distinction between darkness and light remains. We might go so far as to say it is even more starkly contrasted, if that's even a possibility. The distinction of darkness and light runs throughout the scriptures. Darkness is always an illustration and a picture of sin. It's an illustration of the works of the flesh. It's an illustration of the works of the devil. And it is the sum product of the work of the natural man. Before conversion, all we do is grope around in the dark. Even though we perhaps think that we see. The natural man is in darkness. That's the declaration of scripture. His eyes are blinded to the things of God. He gropes around in effort trying to find the way to life. But all of those efforts are in vain. This is a product of the fall. This is a product of sin. Light, on the other hand, pictures righteousness. It pictures salvation. 
It pictures the new birth. It pictures all that is in accordance with the holiness of God. And it is a description of that life that the Christian now lives after having come into contact with the light of the world, Jesus. And after having placed his faith or her faith and trust in Christ, the scripture says in Ephesians 4 that we are now children of light and we walk in this light. This is the product of God's gracious provision for us in Christ. Without Christ, we would be forever lost. If Jesus hadn't come, we would forever be groping around in our sin, blinded to it and to the consequence of it. Paul pictures this in Colossians chapter 1. He makes a great distinction between two kingdoms. These kingdoms are referred to variously in the scriptures, but perhaps no more significantly than how Paul compares them in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. There he is speaking of the glory of redemption. He's speaking of the glories of Christ and his work to come and save us. And he's giving all the glory to God for that salvation when he says in verse 12 of the first chapter, we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And then he says, he has delivered us from the power of, of darkness and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. So Paul is here contrasting the power of darkness over against the power of this new kingdom of the son of his love. And he's reiterating for us that there are only two kingdoms. And you are an inhabitant of one of these two kingdoms, even as you sit here this morning. You are an inhabitant of the natural kingdom, the the kingdom that has the power of darkness presiding over it. Or God in his mercy and grace has conveyed you, don't miss that word, it's translated in the King James. God has conveyed you. He has picked you up out of the kingdom of darkness. He has drawn your feet up out of that miry clay. And he has brought you over and gently set you down upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. And has conveyed you into the kingdom of the son of his love. Where we found redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. This new kingdom is the kingdom of light by the very nature of its king. You see, the king defines the kingdom. And our king has told us in John chapter 8, and he repeats it in John chapter 9, that he is indeed the light of the world. So it follows that his kingdom must necessarily be a kingdom of light. And we are happy inhabitants of that kingdom if we are, if we are found in faith in Christ. Conversely, the world and its system, 
This world that is reserved for fire, this world in which everything in it is passing away, this world in which everything in it is vain and is at opposition with the holy God is in every way shrouded in darkness, the darkness of sin. And it's upon this realization that Isaiah writes in chapter 9 and verse 2 concerning a people who walk in darkness. But what does he say about this people? They have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. We all begin this life walking in darkness. Because every one of us, to a man, woman, boy, and girl, are sinners. We need to realize this morning that apart from Christ, we remain in this darkness, enslaved, entombed in it. And this leads only to further experience of darkness and results in the end. If God does not intervene, it results in the end to an eternal darkness spent under the judgment of God in a place the scripture calls the lake of fire. And someone who has a mind to dispute this darkness and light in the scriptures might say something like this. Well, doesn't the fire give light? My response to that would be the fires of hell only give enough light to illuminate the magnitude of rejecting the gracious offer of salvation in Jesus. I think the scripture teaches that there is a full recognition in the residents of hell that they have spurned the gracious offer of a gracious God. And that is part of the wrath and judgment of the holy God upon them. What a terrible plight that would be. We have an illustration of this need of light. It's given to us in the first 11 chapters that we read, first 11 verses of chapter 8 that we read just a moment ago. This adulteress in the first 11 verses of John chapter 8 is a great illustration of one in need of light. And in a very real sense, she's a great illustration of sinners, period. Not so much that all sinners commit the act that she's guilty of, but in the sense that all stand convicted of sin. You remember as we read through those verses that the Pharisees and the scribes brought to Jesus this woman, and they brought her to him, I think, in a happy way. They were proud of what they had discovered. And they wanted to see how Jesus is going to deal with this person. John tells us that they were trying to catch Jesus. They were trying to ensnare him. What will this gracious, meek, gentle, humble man do with one who was caught in the very act? That's, that's the wording of John. She was caught in the very act. We would say, we caught her red-handed. And this has left her indefensible. She is undeniably guilty. We know that not just because of the accusation of the Pharisees, but notice in those 11 verses, she offers no defense. 
She does not try to reason with Jesus. She does not try to make some defense of herself and justify her acts. And in this sense, she is an illustration and an example of what Paul would write in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 when he says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under it, that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may become guilty before God. She is a picture and an illustration of one convicted before a holy judge and having nothing to say. Caught in the very act. But it goes a little further than that. Not only was she caught in the act, she was condemned by the act. The Pharisees bring up the issue of the law and they say Moses in the law taught us that one caught in such an act should be stoned. And they were right. Go back and read the particular law that they are referring to. And they were totally justified in bringing this woman caught red-handed in the act of adultery, accusing her, calling for her condemnation, calling for the sentence of stoning to be executed on her. And so while it's true she was caught and condemned in the act, it's also gloriously true that she was cleared of the act. And in that again, she stands as a great illustration for us all, doesn't she? And it reminds us that the only words necessary at the hearing of a sinner before a holy God are the words of the advocate of sinners speaking on our behalf. Jesus clears her of this heinous sin and simply tells her, neither do I condemn you. Go sin no more. We aren't given any further revelation as to the the life of this woman after coming into contact with Jesus. Perhaps the only inclination we have is what he says in verse 12, which we'll get to when he says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. He's calling her out of that life of darkness and to walk now into the light. But I want to dwell just a little more on the clearing of the act and Jesus's extension of mercy. There have been many words written trying to interpret and describe what exactly Jesus wrote when he stooped down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. Simple fact is no one knows. Everything is conjecture. I don't know what Jesus wrote. Scripture doesn't tell us. He could be writing there of his mercy. He could be writing there of the condemnation of the Pharisees that brought him. The simple fact is we do not know. But let's not miss the fact of his merciful interaction with this woman. I spoke of this last Wednesday at our prayer meeting before we prayed. And I want to bring just a snippet of that into this this morning. 
Because it reiterates the mercy of Jesus. Notice how in stark opposition to the Pharisees, Jesus acts towards this person. They gather around her, no doubt had drug her into his presence. And they are calling there for her to be openly and publicly stoned. To vindicate their own reaction against her sin. Jesus rather nonchalantly stoops down and begins to write in the dirt with his finger. But the end product uh, is Jesus deals with her according to his mercy. And what we spoke of Wednesday evening before we prayed to a merciful God is what the Lord declared to Moses. You'll remember Moses asked the question, Lord, God, show me your glory. God then conceals Moses in the cleft of the rock. He passes by him and he makes this statement. These are God's words. These are not what Moses thought God would say. Interestingly enough, these words are picked up by several of the prophets in the Old Testament. They are reiterated in the New Testament. They are a repetition of what God has said about himself which is a good illustration of the way that we worship. We say to God what He has already made known of Himself. We don't make things up. We don't say to God, Oh, I wish you were this way, or I wish you were that way. The best way that we can worship God is to repeat to Him concerning Himself what He has already made known. In that, we can always know that we are safe in our worship. We've not gone beyond the boundary of Scripture. We've not made some God in the image that we think He should be. We have not created some idol and then thereby gone about worshiping Him. When we repeat revelation to God, we're worshiping according to Scripture. And God made known to Moses, He says, The Lord, the Lord God. The very next word. Merciful. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. And I don't think we're wrong when we consider these words to be the first inclination of a holy God as he deals with a rebellious people. His first inclination is not judgment. His first inclination is not to squash us under his thumb. His first inclination is not to cast us off. His first inclination as the Lord, the Lord God, is to be merciful. And isn't that what we see with Jesus? He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the God-man. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And as he deals with this one caught in the very act, he deals with us according to his mercy. We would have done the same thing the Pharisees were trying to do. We would have tried to exalt ourselves in righteousness because we were not the ones caught in the act and throw stones at someone else. As we consider this disposition of God towards sinners in mercy, it's also worth considering that the scriptures tell us 
in the next part of that verse that he will by no means clear the guilty and that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and fourth generation. I'd never seen this before until this week as I studied this verse. The great contrast that is made. We often focus upon the latter part of that verse, the third and fourth generation, and we totally miss the first part of the verse where it could literally be translated that he keeps mercy for a thousand generations. His mercy extends to thousands of generations. His judgment extends to three or four generations. However you interpret that latter part of the phrase, and my interpretation of that is that the sin of a father, the consequence that comes to the sin of a father can have immediate consequence to his children, to his grandchildren. If the Lord doesn't intervene, it's not teaching that children inherit the sin of their father, they inherit sin from Adam. They're sinners by nature. They'll bear the consequence of their own sin. But I think the verse is teaching us more so about the inclination of God to dispense mercy upon a thousand generations. Because that's His disposition. The Scriptures tell us that the wrath and judgment of God that we always think is boiling at the surface, it tells us that that anger and wrath and justice of God must be provoked. And in that way, it doesn't come natural to Him. No, God was provoked by the inhabitants of Sodom and in His just anger and wrath rained down fire and brimstone upon them. God was provoked by the sinfulness of His world in Noah's day. But notice that his anger and wrath is always a result of being provoked by sin. That is what makes him completely and wholly just in punishing sin. By way of another contrast, how different are we than God? It's not our anger that has to be provoked, is it? Our anger is always ready. It's our love that has to be provoked. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, provoking one another to love and good works. So in that natural disposition towards sinners, we are the complete opposite of God. God always is ready to forgive. He's ready to pardon. We went through... A dozen or more verses on Wednesday evening that stresses this point. God stands ready to forgive. He stands ready to pardon. Our natural disposition is, is pharisaical. To dispense wrath and forget mercy. The need of light was and is great. Perfectly illustrated by this woman standing in need and receiving mercy from the hands of Jesus. Now that we've considered the need, I want you to, to think with me about the provision of light. Just like the natural creation, the first two verses of, Gen of Genesis, the earth was void, formless, 
dwelling in blackness. That's a picture of the spiritual world before Christ came. Realizing he was typified and foreshadowed under the old covenant, but until the light of the world actually made entrance into the world, the world, the spiritual world was very much like that natural world, without form and void, black. I want to go back and read the first few verses of John's Gospel, chapter 1. And what we're going to read there is that the Lord God provided the light which was himself. He didn't provide a secondary means of light. And note this point. He created the sun, moon, and stars. But he did not create the sun of righteousness. The sun of righteousness being the second person of the Trinity is eternal having no beginning nor an end. You might remember what Jesus said to Abraham as he was preparing to sacrifice his son. His son says, Father, I see the knife, I see the fire, I see the wood, and I see the fire, but I don't see the sacrifice. And what did God reply to Abraham? Or what did Abraham reply to his son? Son, the Lord himself will provide a lamb. Carry that over. The Lord Himself provided the light. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, notice how, parallel, notice how this parallels the account of creation. Intentionally, purposefully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Not only did God provide the light, he provided a forerunner to the light. Someone to come and announce that the sun was about to rise. John was this man in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that, that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a a sermon series on these verses called Born of God. Tremendous. If you ever want to get them, they're in book form. You can read through them. What does it mean to be born of God? God has provided the light. Other scriptures bear this out as well. Paul would write 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 10. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, 
but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Listen to how he concludes this thought. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus, in every way, is the light of this sin-darkened world. And what does he say to this one caught in adultery back in John 8? Even as he says this in the hearing of those accusers of hers that have dispersed, the conscience is a powerful tool even in the heart of an unbeliever. The book of Proverbs calls the conscience the lamp of the soul. Martin Luther would say, It's never safe to go against your conscience. And isn't it interesting that they went out one by one. The detail of the scriptures is even beginning with the oldest to the last. Why do you think that is? Because the older had more conviction of their conscience, apparently. They had more experience with sin. And when Jesus said, you who are without sin be the first to pick up a stone and throw at her, the old men in the group fled, even down to the youngest, because of the conviction of their conscience. So let me just say clearly as I can to you this morning, if God is convicting your conscience, either in the manner of salvation, convicting you of your need to come to Jesus, don't wait. It's never safe to ignore your conscience. If you are a believer and have fallen into some type of sin and the Lord is pricking or even pounding on your conscience, don't ignore it. Repent of that sin. Confess it to the Lord. He will forgive you and cleanse you. But what Jesus says to this one caught in the act, condemned by the act, even as he clears her of the act, he says to her, Those who follow me walk in the light. I think this is the clear invitation of Jesus to come walk in the light. The word follow here has all of these connotations attached to it. Believing, trusting, Walking with Jesus. If you are to follow Jesus, then you will have trusted him. You will have believed on him. You will be walking with him. The same pattern is used by Jesus here in verse 12. We looked at last week where he said, I am the bread of life. We looked at the original language where it is a reiteration, where Jesus says, which would have naturally perked up the ears to those he spoke with, it's a repetition. Jesus says, I, even I, am the bread of life. It's the same pattern here where he says, I, even I, am the light of the world. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So that leads us to the last point. We've seen the need. We've seen the provision. What now of the effect of coming to the light? What, what does it produce? No one comes to the light of the world and walks away in darkness. No one comes in faith. No one comes trusting. No one comes believing in the light of the world and walks away in darkness. This reiterates, reiterates the point of Scripture that conversion or the new birth to be born again is a dramatic change. Far too often we hear of salvation or conversion just being a knocking of the dust of sin off. That's a complete disservice and discredit to the work of Jesus in the life of a believer. It is to be born again. That was what confused Nicodemus. Jesus didn't say you need to be remodeled. He said you need to be torn down and built anew. This is not a restoration effort on behalf of Jesus. This is new construction. There is power in the blood of Jesus. Power to save, power to cleanse, power to change, power to make new, power to walk in holiness before the Lord. This is the clear expectation of Scripture that someone that has come to the light will walk in the light, not discounting grievous falling into sin. We have a sin nature. It remains. We are tempted of the devil. He is wily, deceitful, cunning. He is in every way our adversary. Good men, good women fall into sin. But the overwhelming evidence in Scripture is those that have truly come to the light, there will be a conviction of conscience, even as we've talked about. And the Lord chastens, even as we read in Proverbs 3 this morning, the Lord chastens those whom He loves. That's why we are not to despise the chastening of the Lord. That's not to say that everyone will come around. Some will go out of this life under the chastening hand of God. The effect of coming to the light is reiterated by Paul again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-7. to He says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now listen to what Paul says here. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. It is the same God who made this command who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same creating God who in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 said, Let there be light. 
and there was light is the same creating God that has born you anew. And in essence, he has said into the very depth of your soul, in your heart, let there be light. And there was light. The light of the world shining up in the heart's making known the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Again, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that the day should overtake you as a thief. He's talking about the day of the Lord's return. He says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night. We are not of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The chapter that I've referred to a couple of times already, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 25, Paul says, I say and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who are even past feeling and having given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. What's the truth? He goes on, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. It's not only to this woman caught in adultery that Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. It was to another who was in himself a desperate situation. It's in John chapter 9 and verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And don't miss as I read through this. Don't keep this in the natural sphere only. This is a real account. This was a real man. He received real sight from Jesus. But I think this is an illustration of an unbeliever, blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents. You see, there they go again, dispensing judgment, right? This man's blind. He must have done something wrong before God. This is, an, this is a judgment of God upon his sin. He's born blind. No, in essence, all this is, is a reminder that there is sin in the world and it's destructive. It distorts the goodness of God. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, he doesn't mean that they were sinlessly perfect. He's just giving answer to their question. It's not the result of their sin. His blindness is not the result of their sin. 
but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground. Isn't it interesting? Both of these instances of Jesus saying, I am the world, are shrouded in mystery of Jesus' actions. The first, he's writing on the ground with his finger. The second, he spits in the dirt, makes some kind of clay out of it, and puts it on the man's eyes. Couldn't Jesus have just said, be healed? Of course he could. But he doesn't. He spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. He went and washed and came back seeing. This is an illustration. Every one of us born blind from birth, and we need a bath. We need to go and wash. We need to be washed in the blood of of Jesus. And we, like this man, will come back seeing. You have to love, as you read through this ninth chapter, how those gathered around Jesus, how the Pharisees try to discount this miracle. And the blind man, with simple, childlike faith, as they are questioning him, as they are questioning his parents, is this really the one that sat blind, begging? They're trying to dismiss the whole thing. They ask the man, and he says very simply, here's the one thing I know. It's in verse 25 of chapter 9. And you can almost hear his response of being bombarded with questions. Are you really the the blind man? Are these really your parents? Do you think Jesus is a sinner? How did you receive your sight? All of these questions being fired at him. And he simply says, one thing I know. That though I was blind, now I see. Is that your testimony? There's one thing that I know. I was born blind from birth, but I received my sight by washing in the blood of Jesus. We sing an old hymn, Are You Washed in the Blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? will be washed in the blood of the Lamb. The need of light was great. The world was in darkness. The provision of light was greater. God provided the light in the person of His own Son. The effect of the coming of this light is great according to the power of God in conversion. It takes a man like Saul of Tarsus and makes him the Apostle Paul. It takes a fisherman like Peter and makes him the rock. 
It takes someone like me, blind from birth, someone like you, blind from birth, and it imparts, he imparts sight. So in conclusion, the light of the world has come. But that's not the whole story. The light of the world is coming again. He came the first time to accomplish our redemption. And even now the Spirit of God is taking the things of Christ and making application of them and declaring them in power to the hearts and the lives of sinners like me and you. And remember, his first inclination is to deal with you according to his mercy. He is full of mercy, even today. But he will by no means in the end acquit acquit the guilty. The gospel of the light of the world has been preached again. All men sin, sinners before God having no way to make themselves right in His sight, God having condemned them to blindness from birth. But yet Jesus comes into the world, takes upon Himself the sin that we could never pay for, offers Himself to God upon the cross willingly, bleeding, dying, literally physically dead when they placed His body in the tomb as the result of God making Him sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord willing, God helping us, has been made known again. The invitation now extended, come to Jesus. Come believing. Come trusting that the way of salvation is only found in Him and His perfection before a holy God and not ours. I remind you of the words of J.C. Ryle, which I quote to you often. He says, tomorrow, well, that's the devil's day. And he doesn't there mean that Satan owns tomorrow in any sense. What he's referring to is if you will put off today what should be done today and wait till tomorrow, that's the day that Satan owns, the day which may never come. Being the deceiver and adversary of all truth, he would have you wait. He would list all kinds of reasons to to pacify your guilty conscience. But please realize this. For thousands upon thousands of people who are alive right now, who are breathing right now, even as surely as we sit here, for thousands upon thousands of people, tomorrow will never come. They are making plans of what tomorrow holds. But the sun will never rise for them. Today is all they have. We don't know who they are. And it most assuredly could be some of us.
today is the day of salvation. Today is all you have. This moment is all you're assured of. Will you? I, I implore you. Will you come to Jesus and find rest, eternal rest for your soul? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the light of the world has come. The light of the world is Jesus. You have provided for the great need of the world. You have brought light, and in that light was the life of men. Oh, how foolish it would be for us, for any in this place, to be so close to the light and spurn yet again. I pray that even now you would impress upon every heart and mind and conscience here the brevity of life. Life is a vapor. We are here today, gone tomorrow. Today we are like the grass of the field. We are flourishing and blooming. Tomorrow withered and gone. Lord, we pray that in your grace and mercy, in your first inclination towards us as sinners, that none would escape the net of your love. That none would escape your mercy. Father, I pray that even now, as there is an attempt to pacify a guilty conscience, Lord, that you would work through that. And you would make us all feel as, as you did Jeremiah, your preacher, when he said, if I, if I shouldn't preach, woe is me. There's a fire burning inside of me, even in my bones. Father, become that real to us all. O Spirit of God, make yourself known. Draw all into yourself. Add another voice to the choir of those that sing your praises. And do it in such a way where you alone receive the glory. We ask it in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen.